The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode features a conversation with Jean Bauer, an author, activist, and the president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. In this episode, Jean and I explore the tensions between a food systems transformation approach that is centered around minimizing harm within the dominant industrial food model versus focusing efforts to develop a decentralized, local or regional, community-oriented food system. We explore how plant-based foods can truly be a solution to the problems with our current system while not getting swept up by a model that thrives on extraction, exploitation, oppression, and appropriation of land. We discuss how policy change and public funding can be applied to minimize negative impacts of our current industrial model while supporting local, community-oriented efforts. Jean also talks about the myth that is perpetrated by big ag interests around the need for industrial food production to feed the world. He shares why scale and corporate control in the food industry generally doesn't lead to good outcomes and why we should all be wary of relying on the industrial food model to fix itself without government and consumer pressure to do so. We also discuss the issue of big meat companies getting involved in the plant-based space and the good and bad that may come out of these developments. What I really enjoyed about this conversation with Gene is that he doesn't offer simple solutions and admits that he doesn't have all the answers. Instead, we need multi-dimensional solutions to our current and future problems. I hope you enjoy exploring them with us on this episode. Gene Bauer, welcome back on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Oh, it's great to be here again. I always like talking to you about these kinds of things. Yeah, we've talked about uh, a lot of these issues uh, that I generally tend to bring up on this podcast uh, over the years, not on the podcast since uh, the very early days. I think you were the second episode I released and actually the first guest I talked to um, on the podcast. So I, I don't encourage people going back and listening to that. I had no idea what I was doing back then. Probably still don't, but um, thank you for joining me on this journey anyway. But uh, uh, I'm excited to connect. It's uh, it's good to see you. The last time I saw you was, I think, nearly a year and a half, two years ago, maybe now. Um, I feel like the pandemic time is, I have no idea what time is anymore. <laughs> when I think of things that happened yesterday, they actually happened a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard to sometimes uh, put it all together. But, you know, we have the moment, right? So I think just being in the moment and learning from it, and then bit by bit pieces come together, and then we're into the future. But, you know, this pandemic has really been a strange time. And I think a time of reflection for many people, a time hopefully of internal growth and uh, uh, trying to recognize that, um, you know, we live on a planet that is potentially uh, fragile and that our actions have impacts on other creatures and on ourselves. And that's kind of the work we do at Farm Sanctuary is encouraging people to recognize that every day when we make choices about what we eat, we have impacts on other animals and on the earth and on ourselves and also on other people and workers. So it's, it's you know, the food system 
and, and the way we grow and consume food has profound impacts on ourselves and others. And I can only hope that, you know, this pandemic and some of the horrible things that were experienced during it uh, brought some light uh, and some awareness to the, the profound impacts of our food system. And hopefully that can lead to some positive steps in a, in a good direction. Yeah, I think I like the way you um, you brought up the pandemic in terms of a moment for everyone to to really sit back and reflect on what truly matters to us and what we value. I've been doing a lot of that. It's it's been a it's been a theme of the last year for me, uh, and some of it is obviously reflected in the conversations I've been having on this on this podcast. And you know, obviously, and and I've covered this before, but we we know what happened um, in meatpacking plants last year. We know it suddenly became clear how fragile, not just fragile, because um, we are, have these very long, complicated supply chains in the food system, but also fragile because there's so much consolidation and control in the way food is produced uh, and distributed and and sold that even a small disruption somewhere has a ripple effect. And usually the ones that are that bear the cost of that the most tend to be people who work within the system uh, rather than the companies, a handful of the companies that actually control our food supply chain. So with that backdrop, I, um, I'm i going to try to jump into one question for you, which can take this conversation in, in 10 different directions, which is lately I've been reflecting a lot about um, how much progress we are truly making in in reforming our food system and transforming it and fixing it, whatever term you want to use. For me, it's partly because I've only been involved in this this space or the food system in general as an area of focus for the last decade. And I reached the 10-year the mark and it really got me to think, what have I been doing for the last 10 years? I had a whole different career for a decade prior to that. Um, and so I've been looking back and, and wondering, and of course, we, it seems like we've made a lot of progress, um, but despite all the good work that's been done by environmental activists activists and uh, health advocates and uh, animal welfare and rights advocates like yourself, if you really look at the numbers when it comes to, well, let's just take factory farming, and I, I, obviously that's the most important because it is the most egregious um, part of our food system is the most dominant, most destructive part of it. And this seems to be no signs of slowing down. Meat production continues to rise um, and is projected to rise in the next uh, few years and decades. So how much progress are we really making if, if that's the case? Um, and while we've celebrated many wins in the last decade or beyond, are they just incremental wins that make us feel like our work is valued or is that really making a difference in the world? These are all very good and big questions. And I think that reflecting and thinking critically about what we are doing and what we are accomplishing is really important. Um, I think when I look at our food system and I look at being vegan, you know, to me, being vegan is ultimately about challenging systems of oppression. And, and of course, animals are among who are raised for food are among the most abused creatures on the planet. So ending the oppression of non-human animals exploited for food is part of it, but it's not the only part. There are workers in the system who are also exploited. There are you know, people who live in communities that are being polluted and destroyed by factory farming. But it's not only animal agriculture. There are people who work to pick produce, for example, who are also exploited. So to me, you know, over the years, I've been primarily focused on ending animal abuse, but it's way bigger than that. It's a whole system of oppression. And so for me, that's what being vegan is about. It's challenging systems of oppression and abuses of power. So power is a very important thing for us to come to terms with and to understand. And meat, it has traditionally, and I think still today, is associated with power. You know, you know, business people, when they close a big deal, they go out and have a big steak, for example. That's a pretty typical kind of uh, 
idea of you know meat and power going together. And countries who are very wealthy tend to eat a lot of meat. Like in the US, we're a wealthy country, we eat a lot of meat. Uh, and what is happening now in, in other countries as the economies are growing and they're, and they're becoming wealthier are tending to eat more meat. So meat and power and the exploitation of animals and other people and land and resources is linked to power. And I would call it an abuse of power. So, you know, part of, again, for me being vegan is challenging systems of oppression and abuses of power. Um, and so, so power is a very important thing for us to really try to understand. And, you know, you mentioned consolidation. And, and this has been occurring in agriculture for decades, where the big operations start taking over the small operations. And then we have a quantity production approach instead of a quality production approach. And when you have this quantity production, one of the other tenants that's problematic is this concept of extraction, where you want to take from the earth you know, as much as you can without giving back, take from workers without giving back, take from animals without giving back and sell cheap food that is unhealthy, that makes people sick ultimately. So this is this extractive industrial model that we currently have. And ideally we can move away from that and create a food system that is based more on mutuality, where there is not this extraction, you're not taking from the earth, but you're living in a way that is regenerative and mutually beneficial for people and the earth and ultimately other animals and other people. So creating systems of mutuality to me is something I've been thinking a lot about. And it's easier to say that than to do that. But that to me is a very important concept and principle to try to pursue. And then also to look at systems of extraction and power dynamics uh, where those with power tend to uh, benefit by exploiting those without power. So that's a, a big area to kind of explore and think about and try to identify ways to go from that to a system of mutuality. So to me, that's been a big part of my thinking in, in recent years. Yeah, I love that you identify those two big themes because it, it it's an interesting, I have multiple questions here, so I'm going to try to try to go one at a time instead of overwhelming you because uh that's what you said was very interesting first let's take the the concept of power um and how it applies to a food system i mean I, i'm sure you'll agree that if you if you think of the roots of that a lot of it has to do with the current economic system that we have that rewards power uh and rewards um high volume production which then depends on high volume extraction of resources and uh utilization of resources um whether it is land or, or water or in some cases yes even people and animals uh purely for the purposes of um of achieving uh the goals of of certain companies that are um as as I said, as we both have said are largely in control of how food is uh, produced and who produces it and how and who will get to eat it. So if that's the the dominant framework under which we are all operating, you know, in a way we don't have that much control. I mean, we think we we live in a democracy and we have access to eat whatever we can. It's true possibly for some people who we have the luxury to to opt out of the dominant system. But even if, you know, you're you're sort of medium to well-to-do, you still don't realize that you only have a few choices when it comes to food, whether it's the grocery stores you shop and where they get those foods, the brands that they stock, where those brands get their ingredients from. Um, and if you really boil it down, and you know, there's obviously been a lot of interesting research done on this, you pick any uh, subsector of the food industry, whether it's retail, whether it is... Um, uh, fertilizers or agricultural equipment or ingredients or um, or different food categories it, this you'll typically find four or five companies that largely control the market so all of that to say I want to layer on a second point which is you mentioned to you being vegan is a, a way to challenge that power 
Um, which is an interesting point you bring up in the year 2021, where if you look at the the, the trends in the food industry, plant-based food or plant-based eating, whether it is plant-based meats and dairy and eggs and cheeses are rising in popularity. And a lot of the critics to these new forms of, uh, or these new uh, new products and these new new markets that are being created are critical because they, they point to the fact that these brands and companies all exist within the same dominant framework of power and extraction. So although, of course, it takes out the animal from the equation, which is a giant leap, I'm not, un, I'm not minimizing the impact of that step, it still sort of works within an industrialized, globalized, efficient, exploitative system, except with a slightly better one, perhaps. So, and, and maybe this is a more nuanced conversation about whether what the word vegan or plant-based means to most people. But I'd love your thoughts on 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 how do you look at where things stand today with plant-based eating being so popular, everyone wanting to buy the latest products. Uh, do you consider that to be a separate movement compared to how you view uh, your your choices and and your kind of approach to the entire food system? I think changing the food system is going to be complicated <laughs> and going to require many different approaches. And I think of it largely as bimodal, where you have this industrial model and then you have a more local community-oriented model. In my ideal world is where more people are growing food, have access to food. There's community gardens, there's you know school gardens, there's church gardens, there's rooftop gardens, there's food instead of lawns, you know, this whole different shift towards growing food and being closer to the land with many people participating. So that's my ideal, you know, but today we have fast food restaurants, we have this industrial food system and slotting in a veggie burger in place of a meat burger is a significant improvement in terms of preventing certain problems like animal suffering, extraction of resources because they're more efficient to produce plants instead of animal foods, but it's still part of this bigger machine. And so I think we need to be working to minimize the harm in the machine while also creating a new system. So I think they both play a role and it's again, going to be complicated. I don't think anybody has all the answers, uh, but we learn as we go and we will make mistakes as we go. And then it's a matter of stepping back and thinking, okay, this worked or this didn't work, or this is working in this way, but not in that way. And really just being very discerning and thoughtful about what we are observing in the world with our various actions. Uh, you know, but in the, in the near term, some of these more industrial plant-based substitutes for animal foods you know, I think could play a role at mitigating some significant harm in the near term but I see it as a step towards a better solution ultimately, you know, and away from the whole industrial model to a more local community oriented, organic, regenerative plant-based food system. Mm -hmm. That to me is the ideal, uh, but we're not going to get there overnight. So I think these steps hopefully will start leading us in that direction. I appreciate that answer. I think it, it shows your, your true understanding of the, of the challenge we face, honestly, you know, it's, it's, it's no point trying to minimize it and say that we have any simple answers here. Um, and even when it comes to, even if you take the, the role that substitutes uh, play, and I, I think they definitely play a role. I'm, I'm all for them. Um, I think people want them and I think they, they are better on, in multiple, on, on multiple counts. Um, environmentally obviously for animals and even from a nutrition standpoint they're getting better and better as as the companies grow in in size and get uh, more funding and um and more customers because they demand it they want something better and more nutritious the it then brings up the question as we develop and i'm i'm, I'm with you on the community oriented the local the regional uh the more con we we have to do both right we have to give people 
may not going to magically wave a wand and in the industrial machine is just going to disappear and we're all going to grow our food. Well, if that happened, I'll be hungry because I'm not, I'm not really good at it uh, on the growing part yet, at least. Um, but but even if you're looking at the industrial model, uh, then the question, the follow-up question there is, do we know if the alternatives are actually displacing animal foods? Um, so if, uh, I know it's probably too early and, and because the evidence says they're not really um, because there's been really no dent in meat production or even dairy production for that matter. Um, and so maybe there an added approach that's needed um, is to put pressure on the big meat and dairy companies to... Um, to commit to phasing out the use of livestock for all the long list of reasons we can come up with uh, that it's the right thing to do, especially given the interest now in these alternatives and the fact that majority of these big meat companies are now in that business in, indirectly or directly um, because they see the opportunity there. What are your thoughts on you know, the positive approach is you add the replacements, you know, in a way that's been done with chicken as a way to replace beef and then it didn't replace it just added on people ate chicken and they ate beef or the recent example i heard on a previous episode on, on this podcast was aquaculture as a way to solve some of the overfishing problems and it turns out the data shows that it actually was just additive it didn't replace uh the use of the fishing of certain most species it just um, people were consuming aquaculture fish and they were also buying fish that was fished in the ocean how do we not? How do we ensure that our alternatives, the plant-based ones, and down the line the cell-based ones, don't fall into the same trap? And yeah, what are your thoughts on putting pressure on? Because you have a long history and a lot of experience on this. <laughs> uh, how do we get big meat to be more accountable? I think we need to make them more accountable, right? And <laughs> and part of that means not giving them government support for cleaning up the toxic manure lagoons that they create not giving them financial support to produce cheap corn and soy feeds. So I think that making the industry truly accountable for the costs that they impose on the earth and on communities and on workers, you know, require that people be given a decent wage is going to start driving up the price of these exploitive practices. So I think accountability is huge. And stopping programs that are tax funded from supporting these harmful industries is critical. It's a critical part of it. Um, and so I think you need to have the carrot and the stick, right? So, and part of it, part of the stick is just making the industry pay to clean up the mess that it causes. Yeah. And often currently the, uh, the, the challenge or the approaches have been presented as if it is one or the other. Um, and there's there's been some discussion, you know, most recently about should we get uh, government funding for research into alternative proteins? Should we encourage more innovation in this country that is, um, that is publicly funded uh, so that we can accelerate the pace of innovation and we can actually, um, you know, get even better options and, and qualities of pro quality of products out in the market. And when people, some people hear that, they think, well, any money going towards that means money not going towards other things like, uh, as you said, you know, investing in local, regional, community-oriented food or, um, or land reform and other things. I guess what I'm gathering from you is that it's you think it's possible to do both. And, and in some ways, we should be doing both. I do. I do. And I think that, you know, the question you just raised is that say there's going to be money going into research on alternative proteins to our current animal protein system. You know, if that money comes out of research that's being used to promote animal protein and animal agriculture, mm -hmm. that's a great shift. Mm -hmm. But if that money could have gone to a local plant-based community gardening program, then it's not the best shift in my opinion. So I think we really need to get under the hood and see what government programs exist and start taking money away from those that enable industrial animal agriculture. And if that money can start going towards uh, some of these technological solutions, I think that would be great. 
And at the same time, I think we can be pushing for um, government dollars to go into community gardening. You know, for the last, for the first time ever, a couple of years ago, the USDA gave money for urban gardens. It was like about a $5 million in grants, which is frankly nothing compared to what the USDA spends on other things, but it was a start and, and that was a new program. And so if you can start creating these new programs uh, that are positive and very much centered on community oriented plant-based agriculture and then start building those, I think that's a good thing. And there are a couple of programs that already exist. Uh, for example, uh, SNAP, uh, Supplemental Nutrition, um, Nutrition Assistance Program has a program called the Nutrition Incent it's Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentives Program mm -hmm. that um, doubles up the value of SNAP dollars when they're spent on fruits and vegetables. So that's a really good program that has increased in recent years. And what it does is it incentivizes eating healthy, fresh produce, and it allows those dollars to be spent at farmers markets and in communities that can also then support local farmers. So there are some good programs uh, and those I think need to continue be, to be built. And I think that there are some really bad programs, for example, giving millions of dollars to factory farms to put in uh, you know, manure management systems. You know, the factory farms should pay for their own manure management, and that money could then perhaps be used to invest in technological solutions to the climate crisis and, and so many of the other harms that this industrial animal system causes. Yeah, the one about the, the pollution really always gets to me. It's that first you let them pollute, and then you 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 pay for the for them to make it slightly better. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It, so, it is, there's no better word for it. Yeah. In our current system, there are certain assumptions like we need to feed the world is, is this thing that is said to justify mm. this horrible system. And in fact, it does, it's not an efficient way to feed the world. The most efficient way to feed the world is to grow and eat plants directly. This is why over the course of most of human history, we have been primarily plant eaters just because it makes more sense. And it's the wealthy and those that are able to control and exploit more resources, more land, more animals or other people have been historically the meat eaters. And now as various countries, including the US have become wealthy and powerful, so to speak, there's been this shift towards consuming more resources in the form of animal flesh in animal products. So that has been a trend that I think we need to look at and shift and demonstrate that there are other ways. And, and this idea that we need to feed the world through industrial animal agriculture is just a complete myth that needs to be called out. Uh, this idea that it's efficient also needs to be called out. In fact, there was a report that came out a couple of years ago looking at dairy industry income in the US. And they found that 73% of dairy industry income came from government programs. Now that's not an efficient system. And, and, then, and then the other thing that happens is that, so then the big dairy industry interests will go to Washington. So they're there in Washington, pulling the levers, getting all this money. And then the way they sell this to politicians is that they tell the stories of struggling smaller dairy farms who are going out of business and suffering, their families are suffering. And so the big corporate interests will use the examples of these small farms who they have put out of business mm. to get more government money to line their own pockets. So they are not only extracting you know, resources from the government and extracting the lives of animals and destroying the earth, they're also appropriating and extracting the identities of the individuals mm. who they're hurting which is another whole form of extraction of, a, of a, a new magnitude. So that is what you see in our food system. Again, it's a, a system of extraction and exploitation and abuses of power and appropriating land, you know, over the course of, you know, decades, much farmland has been appropriated, mm -hmm. stolen. In some cases, you know, black farmers who, who've literally had it stolen by white farmers. And um, and then in the case of these dairies, I was just mentioning, you also have their identities and their suffering 
that's extracted and appropriated to get government money for the big industry. So it's a it's a messed up system that we need to look at uh, and then figure out how to create solutions. Now it's easy to point to problems. So this is this mm-hmm. is where it gets really, really, really tough because you know it's easy to point to problems and, and see them. It's a lot harder to actually create the solutions. And I think that creating the solutions is going to again be multidimensional. It's going to be iterative. It's going to be something that happens over time. And we just need to learn as we go and just do the best we can with, with what we know. But uh, I think local farming plays a big role. Uh, I also think that to deal with the industrial system that we currently have, there is also a role for slotting in plant-based alternatives to the animal foods that are very harmful. And so again, it's it's slotting into a, a big bad system, making it less bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's part of it, but we also need to create the solution, which is a little bit tougher. Yeah, especially everything you've said makes me even more uh, wary of the fact that we might inadvertently give control uh, of these new alternatives, these new technologies to the same companies that we're currently criticizing. So that's the part I worry about a little bit. And and it's par- it's partly because we've seen it happen before in in other aspects of the food system. You have maybe, I don't know enough about the organic trend and the emergence of that. I, I wasn't really involved in food and when all that started to get really popular. But if I, the little research I've done on it, there has been a lot of consolidation in the organic space. Eventually, here's what ends up happening often with any new food subsector. You have the startups who come in and they come up with disruptive new trends, whether it's healthy eating, if it's plant-based, organic, for example. And you know they have investments they are investors that are looking for an exit in some form or the other and usually the easiest path to exit becomes for a large food company to acquire them which then consolidates these uh, smaller brands as part of their larger portfolios if you look at most of the organic brands today they're owned by a few companies the same big companies that own non-organic brands we're starting to see some of that in in the plant-based space as well right so uh, and and in one end, it's it gives me hope. It used to give me hope, and lately I've started to worry about it. <laughs> Initially, when it happened, I, I thought, well, this is happening really quickly. It's a sign that you know Conagra and uh, Tyson and everyone else is just going to shift to plant based. Um, but now I'm starting to think maybe that's just my naive lack of understanding of how the food industry works. What's going on here is there, you know, and that's the fear is that what if they you know, what if they have control of these brands? What if they literally buy the highest success, the most successful brands? Maybe some of them manage to stay independent and go public uh, and manage to stay uh, and be real competitors and contenders and hopefully don't become industrial machines themselves that we have to then criticize. Um, but what if majority of the good new technology gets lost in the hands of JBS and Tyson and Cargill? Um, and maybe they're going to have a change of heart and they'll do the right thing, but I wouldn't put my money on that. So is that something you, what are your thoughts on big meat getting into plant-based and the inevitable consolidation that we are going to see in that space? The big question, you know, and I don't have the answer. Um, I share the concern, uh, but you know, if you have Cargill, instead of investigate, investing in more slaughterhouses, investing in plant-based, that seems like a positive Mm -hmm. shift. Um, the idea, though, that this company would then have a lot of power and ownership, you know, that's, I think, a fundamental problem with our capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And um, if they're doing plant-based, that's less bad than animal-based, but it could still be extractive. Uh, so, I, again, I don't have an easy answer to this one, yeah. um, but but I, I I do believe that one of the most important things is transparency. And what has happened in organic that you, that you had mentioned is that how it started out a certain way uh, and then some of the bigger producers got involved, did the consolidation, lowered the organic standards mm-hmm. and are then marketing products at a premium price that are not necessarily produced 
as well as many consumers might assume they are. And so I think with consolidation, with big farming or big business generally, you have a bigger divide between the producer and the consumer. And when you have that, there's more of an ability for the producer and the sellers of the product to mislabel, misrepresent, and greenwash. So, you know, so big tends to often create problems. And so a lot of folks talk about scaling and, you know, there are some benefits, I guess, to scaling, but when something gets really big, uh, there are often issues that arise that are, you know, hard to get a hold of sometimes. And so when, when I think about scaling, I think more about scaling by replication, where instead of like one big operation, you have many smaller ones that are doing similar things, basically, but doing it in a more community sensitive way. Um, because when something gets big, you know, and, and if something goes wrong there, it can have, be significantly problematic. So, so I, I tend to be more of a, a local, again, community oriented, small business mindset that to me seems to make the most sense. And if you look at human societies, when they get to be a certain size, they sometimes become less functional. And, you know, whether or not, you know, we as a species can figure out how to operate a bigger thing in a more functional and sustainable and healthy, mutually beneficial way for all involved or not is a question, you know, because when things get big, oftentimes accountability gets lost. And, and, and this is where nonprofit organizations and uh, animal rights, consumer rights, environmental, social justice, and so on need to be around to be able to tell it like it is. And when there's something going on that's not appropriate, then to make those who are misrepresenting things accountable. And I think when it comes to like, you know, these big factory farms, you know, they're really all about making money. And and sometimes that is done with other negative consequences. And so we just need to be, call it out like it is. And um, again, it's complex, but uh, just transparency is huge, I think. Um, and consumers being educated and then understanding all the aspects, which again, it's impossible to understand them all for, for anybody, but just to be mindful that our food choices have consequences and the structures around how our food is produced have big influences. And, and just to be mindful of that. Uh, and again, it's easy to point to problems because we've seen so many of them, but then creating the solution is, is what we need to figure out how to do. Uh, and, and I think that's what many folks in this space are trying to do. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think I, I appreciate you even exploring some of these complex questions that very clearly don't have simple answers um and and to even to even try to uh, try to come up with some simple solution to it is um is not doing the question or even the issues justice or the people involved um so i do think that uh and i guess one more point and again this is not more of a problem this is actually more coming to your uh the issue that you mentioned about the need for more replication and regional uh, based solutions, uh, not necessarily, you know, romanticizing small, but but all, just being more realistic and more transparent. The the bigger you get, the tougher it is to have transparency. The more you know, globalized the food system is, you have no idea where those ingredients in that box of whatever you bought or that package you brought came from. Uh, it always is 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 better to 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 find ways to obtain it locally. That sometimes tends to be an access issue too, because it's not, you know. And I've I've talked a lot about this too, which is we look for alternatives and we try to go back to do to doing things the own way, or the old way, and we end up falling into new traps that again kind of keep out the people who need it the most, right? So we we say you know big box grocery stores are bad, and you know industrial food is bad, and processed food is bad. Let's go to the farmers markets are great, and then a lot of people just can't afford the stuff at the farmer's market, right? So that's another layer of issue. But before we get into the access thing, I, I, one more thought I had uh, that I would love your input on, which is um, uh, 
so I guess you don't, I know obviously you are in support of plant-based uh, agriculture and, and, and you're vegan yourself, but what do you have to say to um, smaller growers and uh, regional farmers who use livestock uh, all communities and cultures and people who um, find those foods familiar to them um, and and kind of sometimes find the the notion that they have they are now supposed to change their diets to uh, or stop eating the foods that they love because of this industrial system that they had no hand in creating and that they did not benefit from in any way uh, they didn't ask for it. They're just, like most of us, are kind of left with very few choices. And in, in some cases, almost no choices. They buy the, the cheapest food they can get. And if that happens to be, and if they, the food that they're used to cooking is the industrial factory farm meat, that's all they're going to buy. And for, to ask them to change or, or transform their eating habits, for most people, tends to be a, a bit of a... A further intrusion into an already uh, pretty hard life. So, just so there's two questions there. One is more about the the farmers and the growers who who believe that they can do livestock farming the right way uh, at a smaller scale. And then, what about you know consumers who all they want is more control, more sovereignty over their food. Uh, they they want to be able to have the freedom to make the choice versus continue to be victims of this industrial machine. Yeah, well, the industrial food machine is connected to a, a bigger industrial machine where you have people who are living under duress. You know, people who maybe have more than one job and they're rushing from place to place and then going to, you know, a fast food place to get something just to fill their bellies that's not healthy. So it's a big systemic issue, not only about food, but about how we live on the earth. Mm -hmm. and, and part of this also perhaps can connect to families and like extended families. And, you know, when you, I was talking with a urban farmer and um, I remember he was talking about having community events where people would come out to the farm and pick produce or get to know what's happening on the land. And he said, and sometimes people would call and they would like to come, but they said they needed to find a babysitter and they couldn't find a babysitter. And he said, bring the kids, you know, it's this whole idea of multi-generational connections that have sort of been lost a little bit. And it's part, part of, I think, living well, you know, means looking at the bigger picture beyond food and, may, and figuring out ways for food to be accessible, for it to be affordable, for it to be healthy. And, you know, and, and, and it might mean sometimes changing habits instead of stopping by the fast food store, you know, but on the way home, uh, it might be that, for example, like say on church day, you know, a lot of folks still go to church. Um, there could be a, you know, a big sack of beans and a big sack of rice, you know, that was distributed inexpensively and maybe having a big cookout together. And then that's food that people could take home perhaps you know, over the course of the week, or at least part of the week. So there are different models, I think, of being together in a community that is more about mutuality, and that is also perhaps about slowing down a little bit, and just getting out of this system of stress and duress, uh, which the animals experience on factory farms, which many people experience in their work lives and their lives generally. Um, and so that's another part of, I think, the shift that we need to see it's you know in addition to being kind you know for me again being vegan in addition to dealing with systems of oppression and abuses of power part of it is aspiring to live as kindly as possible and that is kindness to other animals to other people kindness to the earth and also kindness to ourselves sometimes you know as vegans and i've been in this movement since 1986 um you know we can kind of beat ourselves up about not doing good enough Right. And so just recognizing that we are human beings, we are imperfect, we are going to make mistakes. But I think it's really important for us to learn about learn from those mistakes. And then when we can to start making positive steps and oftentimes making positive steps means doing it in community with others. You know, none of us is alone. We are very much social animals. We're also very much influenced 
by our social environments. So creating social environments that enable healthier living and access to healthy food. And part of this could also just be access to land. You know, there are some organizations that help people get access to lots of property in communities where they can just grow food and do community gardens. So access to land to become empowered to grow one's own food can make a big difference in some cases. And, and in addition to healthy food, um, getting involved in growing and working on the land is very enriching and meaningful. And, and it could also lead to job opportunities and uh, you know small farming operations in various communities, for example. Um, you know, I often think about, uh, you know, there's this food not lawns movement. And if you think about it, there are people that pay people to come and mow the lawn. Uh, what if instead of paying people to mow the lawn, if they could be literally gardening, you'd have like, and there could be a whole gardening movement where the person who owns the property, you know, maybe does a barter where the person comes in and work gets access to the land to grow produce. And then the landowner maybe gets some of the produce and then the person that's working the land can sell some of the produce at the farmer's market. And, and this could be done in communities where you have different you know, things grown and, 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 and bartered between different neighbors. So there's a lot of creative ways to create solutions, but a big part of it has to do with looking at assets that we currently have, including land, including people's desire to work and, 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 and get connected to the land and, and figuring out how these things fit together. I mean, you know, this, during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about mushrooms and mycelium, the mycelium networks under the earth, and how these connect the trees and help them communicate. And I think that they are part of this vast network of life. And, and we human beings are part of this vast network of life also, but we've kind of been living in, in sort of little bubbles and little silos and, and disconnected in so many ways. And so I think, you know, looking at mycelium and the idea of connections and looking at ways to share nutrients and opportunities is part of, I think, creating the kind of mutual food system that, that I think would be good for, for, for all of us. Yeah, I love your idea of what you seem to be describing is sort of a sharing economy of, of, of farming, right? We have people just sitting on, on acres of property for what? I don't know, just because they can. And, uh, and we can, we can, yeah, we can make, we can so make so much happen with that. So, um, you know, kind of create like a Uber of farming or something, maybe incentivize them, pay them to use their land and or make well, a part of, of the, yeah. The thing about land is it is also an asset and it is part of ownership and capital and control and profit, right? Mm -hmm. So people get land, they hold the land, they hoard the land. So the value increases and then they, you know, looked at, look at it again in a more extractive way, as opposed to in a sharing way. And so, yeah, creating incentives around land ownership and use that um, allow it to be shared more freely and more equitably mm -hmm. would I think be very positive too. Yeah. And in terms of the smaller producers who still farm animals, I mean, my, my general take has been, I don't really talk much about that because they're, to me, that such a small fraction of the amount of, um, you know, meat, dairy, produced in this country that that it, it i don't there's no point for me even focusing on that it, it really we have to focus on the on the problem which is which is industrial farming and find solutions to that what, what would you say to people who who you know offer up um smaller scale animal farming as a part of the solution i mean maybe maybe if they're being realistic they know it cannot be a true solution because we don't have enough land for that uh, speaking of land, what yeah. do you think in terms of being a part? And it also depends what problem we're trying to solve, right? If you're trying to solve the climate problem or you're trying to solve the access to food problem, you also have to be clear about which value are we trying to address in the food system. And not everyone's solving the same problems even. No, that's very true. Well, I would say that um, with growing awareness about the problems with factory farming, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. Uh, there has been a big push to market grass-fed or free-range or so-called humane animal products. 
And I would just say most of those labels are misleading and all about greenwashing or humane washing. Um, but in some cases, if animals are treated less badly, you know, less bad is better than more bad, but it's still not good. And I, I would just point out that there is, even in regenerative agriculture, this belief that animals have to be part of the nutrient system. You need animals to, you know, produce manure to nourish the land. That is not true. We can do veganic agriculture. So the idea that we need to use animals is a myth. Um, now, there can be systems where animals are part of it and the land is improved if it's managed well. So, you know, just being honest about that, you know, like you say, there's different values you're looking at. Part of it is ecological. You know, but the thing about grazing, you know, the, the proponents of grazing livestock for climate issues will argue that they can manage it in a way that the soil sequesters carbon and that deals with greenhouse gases, but they're not looking at, you know, the respiration and the, you know, other, you know, emissions of the animals, the cows, who are actually contributing to greenhouse gases. So they're not looking at a full accounting of that system and they're trying to market and promote it as climate friendly. Um, so we do not need to have animals in the system is I think a really important point I wanna make because there is this assumption that we need to have animals for regenerative agriculture and we do not. Just like we do not need factory farms to feed the world. In fact, I think we can feed the world more efficiently with less land, with less resources, with less energy, produce healthier food, uh, save untold dollars on healthcare costs and, and illnesses by enabling people to eat healthy plant-based food. So again, there's some of these myths that just need to be addressed. And, and this one about grazing animals is, is a good way to protect the climate is just is not a good idea. Yeah, also this obsession with beef is really, you know, it's it's another way to prop up now another industry to replace something uh, when we can just do away with, you know, I think we need to just acknowledge that beef is a big offender even if, for no other reason but because it's because of its sustainability impact, right? If that's the only thing you care about, if you care about ecosystems, you care about the future of the planet and the generations of humans um, that'll inherit this planet, it is it is something i mean especially out here especially out here in the west where we're consuming what 222 pounds of meat uh per person Crazy. per year i mean it's just ridiculous so it's not even a question it, it's and and you know I, I don't necessarily want to get into all the recent political drama around <laughs> banning beef and uh oh, stealing our burgers <laughs> and uh i think i think that's just that's just uh political theater that's what that is but um yeah and yeah <laughs> You know, I, I agree. It's it's kind of political theater. And unfortunately, there are not enough places where there can be really thoughtful, deep conversations about this stuff. And, you know, in the political realm, um, there are certain interests that just want to push simple narratives, right? Like this idea that we need to feed the world, therefore we need factory farming, which is completely untrue. And in fact, I would say the opposite is true. Um, so, but yeah, I think everybody just needs to be you know, thoughtful, discerning. I think most people have pretty much the same interests. Most of us would rather not support cruelty and killing. I mean, most of us would rather not be part of this violent system. Uh, most of us would rather not support a food system that is destroying the planet, cutting down rainforests, denuding wild spaces, uh, causing the loss of biodiversity. You know, there was a, a statistic I saw recently that looked at the number of mammals on the earth and they found that uh, only four percent now live in the wild 96 percent of the mammals on mm -hmm. earth are domesticated mainly farm animals which is insane uh you know scientists talk about how we are now living in in the anthropocene era a time that is very much dominated by human presence and one of the telltale uh markers of this you know, millions of years from now is going to be plastic and another is going to be chicken bones because of the amount of this is what we're creating and producing. And it's just bad for everybody. And uh, so I think that we just need to look at the world that we are living in and creating and start thinking about, OK, how do we step out of that harmful system and how do we now start creating positive solutions? And it's going to be incremental. You know, I mean, I'm a vegan, haven't eaten animal products since 1985. 
uh, you know, but I could do better when it comes to plastic, for example. So I think part of this has to do with also being somewhat humble and recognizing that we all have work to do. And I think that's a really important part of it. And that's true of, of the solutions that we propose too, right? To, to see the limitations and also be clear about what specific problems they are solving and being uh, and acknowledging where there's work to be done. And, you know, perhaps uh, one solution tackles one aspect of the problem, but let's not assume that, that that's going to be the silver bullet that fixes is it all. There, there aren't any. Um, there's no silver bullets at all. So I do think, where, where's your attention in terms of solutions lately? Uh, so I guess it's a two-part question. One is more about where your f- focus and attention is from a, a solution standpoint. Where do you put your time and energy? And, and I guess the second, which is a slightly bigger question, is do you still think there's hope for uh, uh, for people to have a bit of a you know moral awakening uh, around? the dependency on on animals. I mean it's a, it's a question I haven't been asking much of lately but it seems to be popping up again because every, you know we're so I'm I'm myself speaking about myself I'm so involved in like systems thinking and like how can we figure out the right way that you you sometimes lose sight of um you know, maybe this, maybe we can just talk to people about this. And I know traditionally that has not worked over the years because <laughs> uh, otherwise we would have maybe, may, you've been doing this for long enough. You would have changed the entire world by now. And not to say that you've not made an impact, Gene, but um, yeah, I'd love your thoughts on those two things. One is where, what solutions are you focused on? And, you know, can we get people to see things differently and shift their mindset around this dependency around certain foods or animal agriculture in general? Yeah, well, I have been thinking a lot lately about systems and structures, you know, especially those that maintain and uphold our current messed up system and trying to get government money like billions and billions of dollars away from bolstering factory farming. So that is an area I've been focusing on a lot recently, uh, looking for particular programs that we could maybe target federal programs, state programs. Uh, and try to get money away from them. Uh, And so that's part of it. Uh, Also trying to find folks who are growing food in a sustainable, compassionate, just way. So identifying veganic farmers, and I've visited a number of them in recent years. So also looking for the solutions uh, Mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out ways to support that type of an operation. Um, And in terms of hope, can always have hope, man. As horrible as things might be, you know, hope is something we can always have, right? Because it doesn't require reality, <laughs> you know, to be frank. You know, we can vision and dream and think about what we hope for, uh, despite what we see around us sometimes. So you still feel like there's uh, that that maybe, maybe the, it's this next generation, right? Every generation, I feel like uh, millennials got a bit more uh, socially awake and aware about things that are happening uh, is because they inherited a lot of the problems that were created by generations before. And if you look at Gen Z now, uh, they're very socially active. They're, they're the ones who are going to be harmed the most if we continue down this path where we 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 don't find replacements to our destructive industrial farming system and we don't urgently start to tackle these problems. Um and so what I'm seeing is they're just getting active and involved very early, which is crazy to see because like those are things that I would never think of when I was a teenager. Um, but you know, it's it, it, those things definitely give me a lot of hope. Um, so you, you you still think that you know outreach and because I think over the last few years a lot of people have been minimizing the effectiveness of uh, literacy campaigns and like uh, awareness campaigns and. Uh, you know, talking to people and spreading ideas and because they're not so easily measured. Um, Yeah. Do you think that that's making a comeback or needs to or is going to? I think it's always been important. You know, I sometimes think in terms of bean counting and poetry, and I think you need them both. So the bean counting is really about systems and machinery, and we need to pull levers to stop supporting a machine that's causing harm and start building a different kind of machine. So that's 
the bean counting, and this is dollars going to animal agriculture and so on. Uh, the poetry is like sort of the magic, the things that happen in people's hearts and conscience, right? That you really can't measure, uh, but that is a real thing and it can have significant consequences. So I think both are important. And I think they need to inform and sort of interact with each other. Um, but the more difficult the world might appear when we measure the harm we're causing, when we look at the climate crisis, when we look at the loss of biodiversity, uh, then I tend to go more into the poetry world, right? And that's where the dreaming and the hoping and the believing and the magic becomes more important. Uh, but then you also need to look at reality and figure out how you can pull levers. You need to do both, I think. That's a, an incredibly powerful message, I think, because I think I'm going to start approaching everything that way. You need both. You need the magic and you need the practicality. You need to like know when to use the hammer and when to offer a carrot, right? So or a dream. the stick or in a the dream. carrot. <laughs> oh, yeah, or a dream, right? And so there are things that we cannot measure. I mean, that's one of the other areas about bean counting. We can measure some things, but there's a lot of things we can't measure. Mm -hmm. And there's the, the unknown unknowns. There's a lot we don't know. And so I think we, there are opportunities to create hope and magic beyond uh, what we can measure. So I think they're both important. And, and as human beings, uh, we have enormous capacities either way towards generosity and kindness or towards cruelty. And I think most people would prefer and would aspire to be more compassionate. And so to me, that gives me a lot of hope that most people have a similar inclination and desire. Uh, and I think, you know, all of us fall short. And, and, and so this is part of our struggle. Uh, but, but just understanding that we all share so many things and, and then supporting each other in achieving steps in that direction. You know, practically, you know, eating plants instead of animals, supporting more responsible businesses, you know, being empowered to grow our own food. Those are very practical, simple things, but just keeping the hope and the dream Mm -hmm. uh, of a better world, uh, you know, to me is really important. So when you get down with despair because things aren't changing and we're facing a climate emergency and more and more billions of animals are being killed every day, remember you still have the capacity to dream. Uh, Always and, got a dream. And yeah. that's the only way change happens. So I appreciate, Gene, I appreciate this conversation. You know, I reached out to you because I just, I told you, I, need, I kind of needed a sanity check. I just needed to, <laughs> I needed to connect and, and get your thoughts and some of these ideas that have been brewing. And I, as usual, have really enjoyed the conversation. And I appreciate all the work you're doing um, on bean counting as well as creating magic. So yeah, we man. need it all. And, you know, the other thing is that there is also magic in the beans. So, for example, <laughs> the real world, going out and looking up at the sky, looking up at the moon, looking up at the stars, walking into the woods, you know, these things are also magical. So there's magic around us, you know, in addition to the, the beans that, uh, and, the, and, the, and the problems we see. So, gotta, yeah. Gene, you gotta write a book about your philosophy of life. I think that, that I think a lot of people could benefit from it. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, it keeps you halfway sane. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.